Father, we rejoice in your Son and our Redeemer. As we were just singing, he is truly the greatest treasure. He is the pearl of great price. Father, I pray just remind us, remind us all that we are in Christ and all that he is to us. That apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit of Christ working in us and producing in us things that are pleasing to you, we are nothing. Father, humble us, I pray, at your word this morning. And as we look to one another, may we see your grace in each other's lives. And Father, when we see one another sinning and erring in one way or another, when there are other burdens that we need to carry. Help us, Father, to just encourage each other to look to Christ because he is sufficient and we are sufficient in him. Teach and train us, Lord, this morning through your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue in our One Another series that we entitled Grace-Saturated Community this morning, we turn in God's word to look at another responsibility we have towards one another in the family of God, in this community. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, and we will be looking at the first five verses. As as you turn there, I want us to just set the stage for us Um, because this passage is at the very end of the book, and I think we need to just get caught up with Paul and the churches here in Galatia. The churches of Galatia, they were in great danger of believing that Christ was not enough, that his work on the cross and his resurrection was not sufficient to make one right with God. Now, how do we know this? Well, If you've read the epistle, the letter to Galatians, you will remember that Paul defends the true and authentic, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. You will find out that there were some in the church who were insisting that the non-Jewish believers, they first had to become Jews by going through circumcision to prove that they were really good Christians. They didn't deny Christ, they denied the sufficiency of Christ that he alone saves, that he alone is enough. You don't have to perform anything other than believe in his atoning work for you. They were teaching that they had to keep the law again in order to be accepted by God. And so Paul, having heard of this error, dangerous, deadly error, that crept into the church, he pens this letter to discuss their departure from the gospel. This departure from the pure gospel, as a result, brought all kinds of errors. And legalism in the church became norm. And as you and I both know, when legalism reigns, there are all kinds of competitions, all kinds of strife, discord, and envy. So that if you're in Galatian, look at the very end of chapter 5. And look what Paul writes in 
verse 25 and 26, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And here, here's the, the charge here. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. This is the issue that he's dealing with. Legalists, as you are well aware, have this natural ability to apply the law more harshly towards others than they do to themselves. They always cut themselves slack, right? The, the, the legalist foc- focuses on his own strengths while at the same time focusing on the weakness of other people. Instead of assisting people and pointing in them to Christ, legalists, they often bind heavy burdens on people. You need to do more. You need to do this and that. When Christ, friends, is not the sole focus, instead of being grace-saturated community, the church becomes laced with legalism. And that is what Paul addresses here in this book and specifically practically deals with in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. As we look at these first five verses, before we read, the main point or exhortation in, this verse, in these verses is summarized in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens. That, that's it. Bear one another's burdens. In other words, be a burden-bearing disciple. That's the charge. That's the goal. Everything else around this verse is tethered to this command in verse Two. So when Paul commands believers to bear each other's burdens, he doesn't really concentrate on the process of bearing. He doesn't even go through the list of burdens we ought to bear, except for one in verse one, bearing each other's sin. Paul's primary focus, listen, is on the heart. It's a heart matter. Not the external circumstances, but the internal attitude of our heart. And get this, that Paul is primarily concerned not with the heart of the one who fails, but the one who comes to the failing brother in order to restore him. It's amazing. Paul's primary concern is on the heart of the one who comes along to restore rather than the heart of the one who failed. The entire focus is on this. So we need to pray and pay close attention this morning and expect our hearts before the watchful eye of the Lord as we look at these five verses. Let's begin by reading. I want to backtrack a little bit to just get, give us a, a sense of what we're dealing with. Back to chapter 5, verse 13. And we'll, we'll begin there and then we'll read through 6 5. So follow along Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called. To freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into the opportunity, into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, 
disputes, dissensions, factions, envy and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. For those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Very interesting passage, very familiar passage, right, to us. And so we need to pray that that these words land properly and would affect us in, in our application here this morning. I want us as we focus on this passage, just keep this one main kind of central thought as we then drill into it and break this down. A, a burden-bearing disciple relies on the Spirit to walk humbly and love diligently. A burden-bearing disciple relies on the Spirit to walk humbly and to love diligently. You cannot do what the apostle asks us to do, what Christ implores us to do here in this passage unless we are walking by the Spirit. So what are the characteristics of a burden-bearing disciple? This is what I want us to focus. Okay, There's one main theme, bear one another's burdens, but what are the characteristics of the one who can actually fulfill this call? And I want us to look at five here in this passage. Number one, a burden-bearing disciple walks in step with the Spirit. First of all, walks in step with the Spirit. As Paul here begins to instruct Galatian believers with regard how they ought to bear others' burdens, he commands the spiritual, look at this, verse 1, the spiritual to take on the burden of restoration. He says, restore, you who are spiritual ought to restore. And, and, and it's not uncommon for us to hear nowadays all kinds of interpretations and, and uh, many folks uh, confess that they are spiritual. I mean, we, we hear it from our presidents. They say they're spiritual. Um, actors, all kinds of singers, and, and just about anyone, right, who rejects religion yet subscribes to his own or her own form of, you know, spirituality. Everybody is a spiritual person. I don't like Christ. I don't honor Christ, but I'm I'm a spiritual person. Inside the church, too, there are many interpretations to this verse. And most frequently, you you hear of this distinction between the spiritual and the carnal. Okay? Spiritual and the carnal. It's like a two-party system in the church. Uh, There there are those in the church who are the spiritual, who quote-unquote have it all together, right? They're the super-Christians. Maybe this group we think consists of 
You know, those who have been in faith for a while, usually made up of leaders and maybe pastors and other seasoned Christians, that, now they're spiritual, right? And then there, there, there's the group that, that's non-spiritual. They're the other party. They're the up-and-coming class. They've yet to graduate, you know. They're the babies in faith with milk mustaches because they still can't enjoy heavy food. And, and, and so this is oftentimes our... our interpretation, you know, of what a spiritual person is, but is this what Paul has in mind when he uses this term? And, and it's evident when you read through the entire book of Galatians, uh, it does not appear that that's what Paul has in mind here. Who is this spiritual person? Well, first of all, the spiritual person has received the Holy Spirit by faith. If you go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, is this the only thing, uh, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Do you have the Spirit of Christ? So when Paul says spiritual, his primary referent is to the Holy Spirit. One cannot be spiritual without first having received the Spirit. And having received the Spirit then, this person becomes a believer. He lives by the Spirit, what we read in verse 25 of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, if you are regenerated, if the Spirit gave you birth. So first and foremost, the spiritual is a Christian person. More than that, if you glean from other evidence here, the spiritual person is led by the Spirit in his battle against the flesh. We read verses 16 through 18, but I say, look at with me at back to chapter 5. Again, we got to tether this passage to what came in before because that's how we really understand the meaning of what Paul intends here. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, right? But if we are led by the Spirit, verse 18, you are not under the law. The spiritual person, having received the Spirit by faith, is led by the Spirit, walks by the Spirit, and, and finally, the spiritual person walks in step with the Spirit. And I want you to notice something here. Verse 25, we alluded to it a couple of times already, but this is a key verse here. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says here, let us also walk by the Spirit. And if you have like NASB translation, then you look back to verse 16, it says, but I say walk by the Spirit. And then verse 25, walk, let us walk by the Spirit. But the, the, the walk in verse 25 is different from the walk in verse 16. The, the verb in 16 denotes like continual, habitual following, walking. But the verb in verse 25 was used as this military right, term in its context of marching in line. It conveys the idea of following in step, marching. So one commentator says, keep in step is a military command to make a straight line or to march in ordered rows. The spirit sets the line and the pace for us to follow. Keeping in step with the spirit takes active concentration and discipline of the whole person. We constantly see many alternative paths to follow. We reject them and follow the spirit. We constantly hear other drummers who want to quicken and slow down our pace. We tune out to listen only to the Spirit. 
It is not just following, it is following in tune. Where is the Spirit leading us? How do we know where the Spirit is leading us? The Spirit is leading us according to His Word. His Word reveals the direction of the Spirit. So when Paul addresses you who are spiritual, he is saying any of you who are living by the power of the Spirit and are in step with Him in one direction. And that should be all the believers, right? That should include all of us here. The Spirit of God birthed you to become a believer. Without the Spirit, you can't even begin. But also, church, in addressing these believers as spiritual, Paul is reminding them, really, of what it's all about. How great it is to know that when it comes to our ongoing heart change and transformation as believers... It's not about how much willpower we can muster to bring about that change, but it is the mighty work of God's own spirit who works inside and produces the change. It is constant realization. And right from the start, Paul reminds us that, listen, it's not about us. It is not in us. God is mightily at work in you to change you inside out. It doesn't depend on you. It can't depend on you. Many of us have tried living a Christian life on our own. If you think you can live the Christian life on your own, then, friend, your your standard is probably way too low. You're like the Pharisee who lowered the standard so that you can meet it. You're probably not looking and comparing yourself to the one who you should be comparing yourself to. Maybe you're looking at your neighbor and you're saying, against him, I'm pretty good. I can do this on my own. But when you come to the law of Christ and you are exposed to God's holy standard, you realize that you can never do what he calls you to do. Only by the Spirit. And so the key to leading a successful Christian life is to live in the power of the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, like Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. And then, look at this, when the Spirit is at work, when you're walking, when you're being led, then you see the fruit of the Spirit. That's right there. You don't produce love. You don't produce joy. You don't produce gentleness. You can't. I can't. Only the Spirit as we submit to his leading, as we rely on the power of the Spirit, as we read the Scripture and are exposed, and as we repent of our sin, we realize that this is a supernatural work for us to love another sinner. It takes supernatural work of God. Failure to see that we are unable, that we are frail and weak apart from the Spirit will result in us being boastful, will result in us challenging one another, envying one another. This is exactly what was going on here in this church. It will result in us becoming legalists, trying to do the work of sanctification on our own, by our own power. And so Paul's first instruction is that to be a burden-bearing disciple, Paul says you ought to walk in the Spirit. 
You ought to walk step in step, repenting of sin, relying on his work alone. And secondly, I want you to notice here that a burden-bearing disciple, Paul says, restores others carefully and cautiously. Restores others carefully and cautiously. Paul here, in, in, in verse 1, he presents a very common situation that happens in the church all the time. And he says, if anyone is caught in the trespass, if anyone is caught in the trespass, literally, if anyone sins, if anyone sins, more specifically, caught, this word, if anyone is overtaken or trapped by sin, how often does that happen in the church, friends? Right, every first Sunday of the month? It happens often, it happens all the time to us. Because the reality is we all sin. We sin against others and others sin against us. We know that sin is real. And we should expect to deal with it. Even though we are saved by the blood of Christ and have his spirit inside of us, we are still sinners. Martin Luther said, At one time, he says, we are at the same time just and a sinner. Justified sinners. That tag of being a sinner never leaves our sight. We are sinners. We sing this song, prone to wonder, right? We are often prone to wonder. This term here that is used here, trespass, it means to go off the desired course. Like you're, you're in step with the Spirit. You're relying on the Spirit. And then, man, someone else's drum, right, is, is louder. You, you haven't been focusing on Christ, on his work. And all of a sudden, you, you get caught up and you begin to deviate from the desired path. We are not finished products. God desires us to be friends. And likewise, if you turn to your neighbor here, right, he or she is not a desired product or or a final product as well. So while we we don't take sin lightly, we expect that because we are not fully perfected, because we are not fully sanctified yet, Christians will sin. Friends, all churches are full of sinners. This church is full of sinners. And that's great because we're there where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Right? We can celebrate. That's why we come here every single Sunday to celebrate God's grace to us. Why? Because we were perfect all week? No, it's because of his perfect grace that covers our sin. Specifically in this context, In the churches of Galatia, Paul may have in mind those who were being led astray by the false teachers about whom Paul warns throughout this chapter. These people may be causing divisions in the church because they were being deceived. Instead of helping deal with sin, they were placing heavy burdens on them. But whatever the case may be, Paul is calling these believers to bear the burden of that brother's or sister's failure by restoring them back to health. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. 
restore such a one. This, this, this word here, restore, it means uh, it, it was used in, in the secular Greek uh, literature to, as a medical term, to set something back, like to set a fracture back in place, dislocated bone. To put something in order to restore back to its former condition, to, to mend something. This word also, restore, was often used in uh, mending the ripped nets. So put it back together. So Paul says, if you see someone trespassing, doing something wrong, you are not to stand by doing nothing as if it's none of your business. You've got to get involved, Paul says. I like what John Stodd, the the kind of insightful implication to this command he offers. He says, notice how positive Paul's instruction is. If we detect somebody's doing something wrong, we are not to stand by doing nothing on the pretext that it is none of our business and we have no wish to be involved, nor are we to despise and condemn him in our hearts. And if he suffers for his misdemeanor, say, serves him right, or let him stew in his own juice. Nor are we to report him to the minister or gossip about him to our friends in the congregation. Who would treat a sinning brother or sister in such a way to come alongside and to restore? Well, someone who is spiritual. Someone who is walking in step with the Spirit, right? When he sees someone out of step, disobeying the Word and dishonoring Christ in any way, the one who is controlled by the Spirit will, will come alongside in order to bear the burden, the weight of their sin and point them to the true healer. Don't let fellow sinners, friends, get crushed by sin. Paul says, come along and and bring them the good news of the gospel. Tell them Jesus saves. Tell them to confess their sins because Jesus is just and righteous to forgive their sin and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Help them. Bear with them. Be patient with their sin. But, but notice the last part of this verse. This, this is the manner in which we are to restore. Again, it goes back to your heart. Notice it's the one who comes up to restore whose heart is being addressed here. He says, do it in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Do it caringly. Care for that person. How many of you at one time or another came up to Pastor Mike? I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second. Uh, and, and asked him, you know, uh, to look at your hand or your wrist or maybe your knee or something uh, because it's giving you trouble, right? Many, many have. Well, praise the Lord. Thank you, Mike. Right? Uh, do you recall how, how he treated that hurting member? Um, when you give him your wrist, he takes it and he's so soft and so careful, so tender, just you know, presses a little bit. Hey, does, is, does it hurt right here? You know, does it hurt right here? Why, why is he doing that? Right? Not to cause more pain, more discomfort, more hurt. Gentleness, caring. This is the image here, friends. The goal of this process here is very beautiful. 
You want to restore the fellow believer to full health, to full strength, to full effectiveness. And the manner in which you handle that sin, that fallen believer matters because you don't want to cause more harm. You know, treat it with gentleness. You know, often in our eagerness to confront, we just let the person have it. We come with our thick Bibles like this. We quote a ton of scripture and we say, you are wrong. And we leave them there hurting and humiliated. Maybe we just step on them too while we at it and we leave. Do you want to see Christ exalted in that person's life? Do you want to see them be effective light in their lives, in their families, in their ministries? Yes, we all do. I mean, you want that for your family, right? You want that for your wife. You want that for your husband, for your kids, don't you? Well, welcome to the family. And Paul says, if, if you're walking with the Spirit, then you will deal gently with the sinning believer. Jesus says, Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for what? I am gentle and humble in heart. And so since Jesus is gentle and he, listen to this, Jesus being God accommodates our weakness all the time. He's patient with us even today. Because he accommodates our weakness, we who are being accommodated must accommodate others, must be like Christ to these people. And we deal with gentleness with one another because unlike Christ, we realize that we too are vulnerable and weak. We too are very vulnerable and weak. Oh, look at the end of this verse. He says, each one looking to yourself so that you too may not be tempted. Not only do you deal with a sinning brother caringly, but also cautiously. Look to yourself. What does Paul mean here? I think Paul is warning us about the common temptation we all face when we learn about another person's sin. Paul could mean that we might be tempted to fall into the same sin that we're helping him deal with, or that we might be tempted to be unforgiving when when someone sins against us, that instead of being patient and forgiving, we might be tempted not to. And so Paul warns us, be cautious or that we might be tempted to be prideful and feel superior to that person. I think this last one probably fits the context the most in light of verse 3, to which we'll get here in a minute. Restore cautiously, friend, and deal with spiritual pride, he says. When someone sins, it becomes a, a kind of a checkpoint for you to test your own walk with the Lord so that you do not become proud thinking that you know, you won't commit the same sin, that you're above this person somehow. Friend, listen to me. You are capable of any sin. You are capable of any sin. I am capable of any sin. I won't take the time to give you a list of sins we're capable for, but dear friend, were it not for the kind grace and the restraining arm of God upon our lives. We could be committing all kinds of trespasses. I hope you understand that. 
1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. When you see a brother or sister sinning or find out about another person's sin, how do you respond? Think about it. How do you respond? What is your attitude towards it? Do you rejoice deep down in your heart? Do do you rejoice? Do, Do you find some personal satisfaction in knowing that I'm better? Do you think in your heart, well, it was just a matter of time. I, I knew this guy was going off the cliff. It's just a matter of time before it happened. Or when you find out about another person's sin, do you grieve? Do you begin to pray for them, to look for ways to gently help them to see and for you to see how you can come alongside and just help bury that burden. In our efforts to restore one another, we need to be cautious of thinking we are better than that sinning brother or that sister because we too are very much susceptible to the same. And this humble attitude will drive us to depend on the Lord and deal gently. Whenever you're dealing with or hear of another person's sin, another minister failed, you read an article that's published all over the internet, or your friend or or a friend of a friend is in sin, that should drive you to the Lord and should be a checkpoint to say, Lord, if it's not for your grace, this could be me. This could be me. So thus far, we have seen that a burden-bearing disciple walks in step with the Spirit, and as a result, then, he restores others caringly and cautiously. And I want us to look at the third characteristic, a burden-bearing disciple, number two, three, loves others diligently through various struggles. Verse two, I've already stated that this verse two is the primary statement of the entire section. The call is to bear one another's burdens. This is our Christian responsibility to one another. We, friends, are not to increase the people's burdens, but to make them light. Make them lighter for them. This word burden here, bear one another's burden in verse 2, extra heavy weight that is just too difficult to carry alone. And it's a metaphor that describes the, the general weaknesses, hardships, and struggles of our Christian life, one of which is our constant struggle with sin, which Paul highlights in verse 1. That's just one of the burdens that he calls us to carry, deal patiently with one another. But there are other burdens, no doubt, which affects our bodies and our souls. I like what John Piper says. He says we should define a burden as anything that threatens to crush the joy of our faith whether a tragedy that threatens to make us doubt God's goodness or a sin that threatens to drag us into guilt and judgment. Anything. All kinds of struggles. I mean, this burden of physical sickness, of death, losing a loved one, of being lonely, of being rejected, 
of losing a job and and becoming unemployed, financial struggles, broken families, broken marriages, wayward children, personal conflict. We all have struggles, right? Speaking to the wrong crowd. We all have struggles. Christians, friends, are not immune to these struggles. And in fact, in some way, being a Christian could only add to our burdens. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you'll have all kinds of trials and tribulations. Yet, we who are connected to the living Christ find grace and mercy to endure through these struggles, don't we? As the body rallies around one another. It's in the midst of our pain that we find Christ's power is perfected in weakness, as Paul himself testified. Read what Paul had to endure. Notice Paul's assumption in this command. All of us here at Grace Hill Church have burdens. And God doesn't want us to carry them alone. Again, I'll refer to John Stott's observations here. He says, some people think it a sign of fortitude not to bother other people with their burdens. Such fortitude is certainly brave, but it is more stoical than Christian. Others remind us that we are told in Psalm 55 to cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you and that the Lord Jesus invited the heavy laden to come to him and promised to give them rest, the verse that I cited. They therefore argue that we have a divine burden bearer who is quite adequate and that it is a sign of weakness to require any human help. This too, he says, is a grievous mistake. True, Jesus Christ alone can bear the burden of our sin and guilt. He bore it in his own body when he died on the cross, but this is not so with our other burdens, our worries, temptations, doubts, and sorrows. Certainly, we can cast these burdens on the Lord as well. We can cast all our cares on him because he cares for us, but remember that one of the ways in which he bears these burdens of ours is through human relationships. This is, this is why we have a body of believers. Church is also God's means of grace, friends, to support one another through various struggles. We need one another, beloved. We need one another. The church is Christ's provision to help bear our load. And the devil, listen, will have you to believe that you can do it on your own and don't fool yourself. You need the body of Christ. You need a healthy body of Christ. Why do we need one another? Why do we need one another? Because you know, in the midst of loneliness or rejection, I need you to be with me and remind me that Christ is my all in all. Oftentimes, Christ tugs at your heart to come and speak this truth to me because I am too dejected to open up scripture and read it for myself. And I need a loving brother to come alongside and say, listen, bro, open up the word and see what it says. Christ is enough, and I am here for you to bear with you. When your marriage or when your family is falling apart, you need me and others in the body of Christ to pray for you and to encourage you to love your spouse because Jesus loves you because he is worthy of your obedience and he will empower you by his spirit to live for him even in the midst of your suffering and trial. Look at the end of verse two. 
when we bear each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. To fulfill the law of Christ, friends, is to love one another. It is the law of love. That's what Galatians 13 and 14 says. We read it. For you have been called for freedom. It says, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John 13 says, a new commandment I give to you, Christ says, that you love one another. So we fulfill Christ's love. We love one another when we bear each other's burdens by confronting sin and and restoring each other in gentleness. We prove to love one another. By comforting each other in various trials, we prove to love one another. By participating in each other's material needs at times, we prove to love one another. Why do we love? Go back to the first sermon, 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. Because his love is poured out into our hearts and we become the channels through which His love spills over to others. It is a spirit-inspired love that inspires us to care for and to support one another because love is the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5. Friends, you know, we are to be like these stakes. Stakes that are staked next to each other. You know, you ever planted a weak tree? Like you went to Home Depot, bought a tree, and tried planting a tree during the weather that we had this morning. You can't. Too many trials, wind and rain, blows all over the place. What do we do? Along with the tree, we buy two stakes. And we stake it right next to the tree. And we wrap wire around it so that that tree can be supported. And that tree is planted there for a year or two or three. And then comes a time where we remove the stakes. Why? Because the tree is healthy enough is mature enough, has its roots deep enough. And then at times we actually begin to attach other things to the tree. Like a falling fence. We nail it to the tree. Why? Because the tree is mature and it now is able to support others. We need to be staking our lives, friends, to someone else in this congregation. Do you have these caring relationships established in the body. You cannot do life on your own. If you just come here on Sunday and you just check out and you check in, it doesn't do much. You need caring biblical relationships. Do you know people here? Do people know you? Do they know what you're struggling with? Maybe you're just trying to figure things out on your own. You're putting up a fight and it's a valiant effort, but... It's tough and you're struggling. Man, talk to someone from your life group. Join a life group. Talk to someone here on Sundays. Let's get more involved with one another because that is the essence of our love for one another. So far, we have looked at three characteristics of a burden-bearing disciple of Christ. Look, the first one was in relationship to the Spirit in that this person walks in step with the Spirit. The next two, then, were in relationship to others in that we restore others caringly and cautiously. And then we love others in their various trials and struggles. These last two found in verses 3 through 5 are in relationship to self. It's all about the heart. 
and they function as sort of a caution. Caution. Maybe you're sitting here and thinking right now in your hearts, you know, this whole burden-bearing stuff is just not for me. I don't need someone else's troubles to disrupt the good life I have going on right now. And Paul says here, listen, number four, a burden-bearing disciple understands his own condition. A burden-bearing disciple understands his own condition. He says, four, he's the explanation, caution. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This one here is very close to, closely tied to verse one. Paul says that, we, what will prevent you from caring for that brother, from that sister, right? For bearing their, their burdens is a high view of self. If you think too high of yourself, you will stop caring about other people. Pride. Pride, and Paul says, pride deceives in verse 3. Someone says, pride is like a bad breath. Everyone knows you have it except for you. Pride makes you think that you're something. I'm all that and more. What does Paul mean with this expression? Well, what, what this person believes himself to be is someone who doesn't bear the burdens of others. Those struggling with sin and other burdens, such a person here believes that some things are totally beneath him. Some people in the church are not worthy to be around. They're not worthy to be supported and cared for and pray through. And yes, they sin and they sin again and they sin again, but the spirit-filled believer will come alongside and will bear with that person, will forgive and will be patient, will biblically deal with sin, absolutely, but will not cast them aside. Friends, we think this way if we are honest with one another. We often don't want to get involved with other people who are going through struggles simply because we think they're in just too big of a hole and, and we don't want to go down there. Wow. Wow, I didn't know it was that bad. We don't want to, we don't want to go down there. We don't want to get messy. We often don't want to carry these burdens because we think we're more important than others and, and our needs must be first. I got my own burdens. I got my own burdens. But notice here the whole emphasis and focus here is not so that other people can carry your burdens, so that you can carry other people's burdens. It doesn't mean go share your burdens now all of a sudden with others so that people can care for you. No, it says you take on the mentality to be a bur burden bearer. And yes, you will be served absolutely this way, but the focus is that you see theoretically we'll all agree with this text but it's about the way we behave and live like in the midst of our relationships with our actions we often demonstrate that it's all about me and to help the church here paul just sets the record straight he says let's get one thing right when it comes to you thinking that you are something know that you are nothing. I mean, that hurts. When you read this verse, it hurts. Verse 3 is, is brutal. It's like someone puts their hand in front of your mouth, you breathe out, and that bath 
breath returns right back at you. So you begin to smell exactly what's going on. Whoa! I need to adjust my heart attitude. I need to go brush my teeth. That's what verse 3 does to us. You think you're something? Tim, you think you're something. You are nothing. He just, he just concludes. He doesn't even argue. Nothing. You see, the reality is that none of us are righteous in all that we do. We are nothing apart from God's grace and the power of the Spirit operating in us. Listen, there should be no pride. Absolutely, there is. And we're repenting of it and we're confessing. And every time we see it, we need to go back to the Word and pray, Lord, remove this thing. Help me to see myself in light of your truth. Because God's truth is evident. Romans 5, 7, verse 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Jesus says in John 15, For apart from me you can do nothing. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Paul also says, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God is everything because he causes the growth. Paul says, if you think you're something when the scripture is clear that you're nothing, you're in a state of deception. You deceive yourself. We are no better than anyone else in this room. We are just sinners who are saved by God's grace alone. So the call is be merciful, friend. Be gracious to a fellow sinner. And if you're relying on the Spirit and you understand that anything good in you is of God, then you will. You will come along and you will cry and you will bear and you will put up with your children. You will put up with your spouses. You will put up with your pastors. You will put up with your congregation because it is God who is at work. What is the solution to pride? What will deflate our high view of self? Well, let's look at the final characteristic here. A burden-bearing disciple recognizes his own accountability. In verse 4 and 5, Paul says that the way to deal with pride is to recognize who you're ultimately accountable to and begin to examine yourself. What inflates our view of self is this constant comparison with others, especially those who are struggling with someone. Listen, we never compare ourselves to someone who is strong in faith. Why? Because we know that there wouldn't be any cause for boasting. We compare in order to boast. But what happens when we compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ? Man, how far we fall, how low we go. And this is where we need to be. Paul says, but each one must examine himself, examine his own work. Put yourself to the test, beloved. Test to see if you're pure. Against what standard? Against God. He's the only right standard. And what happens when you find something in yourself or in your work, in your ministry, or in your family that is truly worthy of praise? Some great thing. What happens then? You will boast not in the work, not in your work, but rather in the grace and the working of God in your life. This is what he means in verse 4. When you examine and you see, you know, there's, there's a lot to, to be thankful for here. In my life, in my family, in my kids, in my church, in other things. You will not pat yourself on the back and say, good job, brother. You, why? 
you will realize that, you know, you water, you plant, but the Lord causes the growth. It's him, and so therefore you will begin to praise him. And if God is at work, friends, and I believe God is at work in your heart if you're a child of God, then there will most certainly be something worthy of approval and boasting, right? God is too big to miss. You may be struggling with sin, absolutely, and you are. But when you reflect on what's going on as a whole, you are thankful to God for his mercy towards you. 1 Corinthians 1.31, we read, right? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We too, friends, may boast about what God is doing in us and God is doing through us, not in comparing ourselves to others, but in seeing God's grace enabling us to work. Because, friends, get this, we will all be accountable before God personally. Each one, verse 5, will carry his own load. His own load. There's no contradiction here with verse 2. This term here, load, was used as a military term to refer to one's pack or backpack, soldier's kit. So uh, verse 2 says that we carry burdens, huge loads that are too big for us to carry. But here, each one of you will carry your own backpack, will carry your own kit. And, and here's what I think it boils down to. At the end of it all, you will give an account for how you lived your life as a believer, each one of you. Yes, we are to bear one another's burdens, which are too heavy for one man to bear, but there is one load, friend, which we cannot share with one another, and that is our accountability to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack, and I cannot carry your pack. We will all stand. Each man will carry his own uh, load here, the future. Notice the future of verse 5. For each will, something will happen at the end that you will give an account 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This judgment here, friends, is not unto condemnation. No, we're not going to be condemned. Praise the Lord. Our sins are all paid for fully and finally because of Christ. And through our faith, repentance, believe in Christ, we Claim those promises that we will forever be saved. But friend, we will give an account for our work whether we did it for Christ or not here. And so Paul says the burden-bearing disciple recognizes his own accountability and that, that keeps him low and that keeps him humble. So how are you doing with this? A burden-bearing disciple relies on the Spirit to walk humbly and to love diligently. We can bear each other's burdens, friends, because Jesus bore our burden of sin. He took our reproach and our condemnation. He is so patient with us. That's why we can be patient with one another. How many times should I forgive my sinning brother? Seven times? No. Bear that burden. Forgive. Encourage. Spend time with him in prayer, in, your, in the word of God. Don't give up. When you fail to love others by supporting them through whatever difficulty your brother or sister is going through, you need to go back to the gospel. You need to be reminded that God's grace to us, right, enables us to be gracious to one another. 
There's only one solution. So friend, know that you cannot live your life on an island. You need to engage with other people. To share burdens, to lift up others before the Lord. So get connected, be real. Rely on the Spirit. Be humble and diligently love. Father, we thank you for this exhortation and I pray that this church here in this part of town will be this beacon of love and a testimony to all those who are heavy with burden. We cast them all on you. You call us, cast all anxieties on him and worries on him. You care for us. And the next minute you send other people to help carry that load and that burden. And we realize that you truly do care for us. Help us, Father, I pray, not to forsake this godly command and responsibility to one another. Build our faith. Help us to rely on the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.